Hello, and welcome on into Dogs in Autumn, the history of American football. Today we're going to cover the history of the conference that sits at the very top of the hill of Midwestern football, the Big Ten. Just as a note before I get it cranked up, I use the terms Western Conference and Big Ten more or less interchangeably throughout this episode. That's because while those are the names everyone has known this conference by at different points throughout its history, for most of that time, neither was actually legally the official name of the conference. It can get a little confusing, but hopefully not too much. I'm happy to be here, and of course, very happy to have you here as well. I already touched on the very beginnings of the Big Ten in my episode, Into the Heartland, so here I'll very quickly try to get us up to 1912. Football spread quickly in the Midwest, and in the years between 1879 and 1895, it had grown enough that players and fans in the region, which was then called the West or Northwest, depending on where you were, began to get a little cranky about the fact that all the rules were decided in smoky rooms on the eastern seaboard. They weren't alone in this. As we'll learn in greater detail in coming episodes, this was a political time in the small but growing world of American football. And like so much of the rest of American culture, when it gets political, it gets regional. Everyone began to object to the intercollegiate football associations lording over the rules of the game. There was an abortive attempt at organizing the Midwest in 1892 called the Intercollegiate Athletic Association of the Northwest, but it fell apart within a couple of years. However, the movement was underway. The next attempt started with a meeting of Purdue, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Northwestern, Illinois, Chicago, and Lake Forest in 1895. Their primary interest at the time was the principal question driving similar meetings all across the burgeoning landscape of American football, player eligibility. I could do a whole episode on amateurism and sports history, but spoiler alert, no one anywhere in the world took it as far as college football has. That meeting in 1895 ended with an agreement to reconvene the next year. When they came back, Lake Forest had been replaced by Michigan and the Intercollegiate Conference of Faculty Representatives was born. The Western Conference, as it was widely known, adopted their modified rules in 1896 and added Indiana and Iowa in 1899. By 1906, a bit of a populist fever spread among the members of the Western Conference. There had been a growing concern with safety over the preceding decade. It got bad enough that President Teddy Roosevelt got directly involved, but we'll get to that later. But many members of the Western Conference wanted to limit the amount of the game students could play to no more than three years. Furthermore, they were appalled at the amount of money being made off ticket sales for the sport and adopted a strict policy of no more than five games per season with tickets costing no more than 50 cents apiece. None of this was popular in Ann Arbor. Michigan had been playing football longer than anyone else involved, and as a result, they had developed relationships with football powers on the East Coast, ones they wanted to maintain. Furthermore, the three-year eligibility rule had been applied retroactively, therefore making seniors who'd played as freshmen ineligible, which specifically cost Michigan their team captain for the 1906 season. After one year under the new rules, Michigan's Board of Regents voted to withdraw from the Western Conference, and they would remain independent until finally returning in 1916. That brings us up to 1912, when finally, Ohio State joins the Big Ten. Ohio State began playing football in 1890, and given what they would soon become, it's hard to understand why they weren't playing with the big boys from jump. The cost of entry at this point in the sport wasn't exactly high. The distance from the gutter to the top could be measured with little more than taking the first step. But instead, they chose to play football almost exclusively against other schools in the state of Ohio. They first played Michigan in 1897 and lost 34 to nothing, 
which given what that rivalry has become, may as well have been a loss of by a million. Michigan became a fixture for Ohio State from 1900 onward, and with each consecutive defeat between 1900 and 1912, it grew ever more desperate that the Buckeyes finally beat Michigan. But by 1912, Ohio State had outgrown the other Ohio football schools, and their application to join the Western Conference was approved. However, this was in the middle of Michigan's hiatus from that conference. Following the Wolverines' exit, the schools of the Western Conference had raised the five-game limit to seven, but that hadn't been enough to tempt Michigan to come back home. And as a consequence, Ohio State's annual attempt to beat Michigan had to take a hiatus as well. They wouldn't meet again until 1918, a game which Ohio State also lost. However, finally, the Buckeyes broke through in 1919, and what we now call the game was underway in earnest. Michigan had rejoined the conference in 1917, and this is where we begin to see the term Big Ten floating around in sports media. As I pointed out on the Into the Heartland episode, the first Titans of Midwestern football were Michigan and Chicago, plus a third in Minnesota I probably didn't cover enough in that episode. But in these early days, the conference was generally more competitive than it would become during the middle of the 20th century. Wisconsin won five titles, split titles included, between 1896 and 1912. Iowa, Northwestern, and Illinois each got one apiece in the same stretch. Minnesota won zero before the turn of the century, but then won on a run, winning seven titles between 1900 and 1912 when Ohio State joined. Speaking of the Buckeyes, it took them a few years, but they won their first Big Ten title in 1916, and their second in 1917, and their third in 1920. And I think you see where this is headed. Unfortunately for Chicago, the rise of Ohio State, continued dominance of Michigan, and all-around competitiveness of the league at this point in history seems to have come at the expense of the Maroons. Between 1896 and 1925, Chicago took home seven conference titles. After 1925, the number collapsed to zero. Chicago would make the decision to de-emphasize football in 1939 for reasons we'll get into later, but then eventually they formally ended the program in 1946. 1946 is a good year to stop for a more long-term assessment, though, as it marked the 50th year of Big Ten competition. By 1946, the history of the Big Ten Championship looked like this. Michigan with 16 titles. Minnesota with 16 titles. Illinois with 9 titles. Chicago with 7 titles. Ohio State with 7 titles. Wisconsin with 5 titles. Northwestern with 5 titles. Purdue with 5 titles. Iowa with three titles, Indiana with one. If you stop the history of the conference here, the present-day Big Ten, completely dominated by Ohio State, Michigan, and Wisconsin, wouldn't really have been that predictable. You probably wouldn't have imagined that Minnesota's last Big Ten title would come in 1967, or that the top half of the conference over the last 30 years would include a second team from Michigan in the form of the Michigan State Spartans, affectionately Sparty, and the Nittany Lions of Penn State. But that's how it unfolded. Another reminder that history doesn't care what you think before it happens. Michigan State would essentially replace Chicago, joining in 1948 over several other contenders, including Nebraska, Notre Dame, and Pittsburgh. Minnesota fell off over the course of the 50s and 60s, which it would turn out was a bad time to not be great in college football. Those two decades brought with them the spread of football on television, coinciding, though probably not merely coincidental, with football eclipsing baseball as America's most popular sport. 
Most of the programs we call Blue Bloods today were programs that just happened to dominate the sport at this particular point in history, which includes Michigan and Ohio State. They'd achieved such a level of notoriety by the end of the 60s as to almost transcend their home conference. But it wasn't quite even between them. In fact, by 1968, it was widely and accurately believed that Michigan football had fallen on hard times. Between 1950 and 1968, they'd lost 12 games against Ohio State and legendary Buckeye coach Woody Hayes. So Michigan turned to Bo Schembechler. Between Schimbeckler's hiring in 68 and Hayes' firing in 78, they split the series and even 5-5 five and five in a period remembered as the 10-year war. Also over this middle period of the 20th century, beginning roughly in 1946 and carrying on until recently, the major bowl games rose to prominence, and none would rise higher than the granddaddy of them all, the Rose Bowl. Until the end of the Second World War, the Rose Bowl selection criteria was much less specific than it would become later, only specifying that a Pacific Coast Conference team would play a team from the East, vaguely defined. But you get an idea of how it would develop from the very first matchup in 1901 between Michigan and Stanford. It was more often than not the case that the West Coast team would play a team from the Midwest, and if not the Midwest, then the Northeast. Though some few Southern teams would be invited to a Rose Bowl in the early days, they were few. And the reason for that is something that profoundly shaped the development of American football, just as it profoundly shaped the development of American society, culture, and politics in general. Segregation. We'll go into that later on, though. After the end of the war, the arrangement became a formal one. The Tournament of Roses, which is the committee responsible for the Rose Bowl, would put on the annual matchup between the best team in the Big Ten and the best team in the Pac-12, or whichever predecessor was extant at the time. Both operated with a no-repeats rule, meaning the same team couldn't go to the Rose Bowl in consecutive seasons, that made for some awkward situations at times, but the relationship remained intact and controlled by the conferences themselves for decades. All that would start to change in 1998. Over the long unfolding of football history, the Big Ten has remained at the top of the college game. It's home to some of the sport's most classic teams, famous historically for an almost obstinate adherence to a style of football called, affectionately or pejoratively depending on your preferences, three yards in a cloud of dust. College football was so popular and so successful in the Midwest it became the natural epicenter of professional football when that side of the sport finally started to get, get its legs under it. As of this recording, every Big Ten program shares its state with at least one NFL franchise, with the exception of Nebraska. And Rutgers, I guess, although both New York franchises actually play in New Jersey. But next time, we're headed down south, where college football enjoyed a long run, mostly unaccompanied by professional football. To this day, across much of the American South, the college game remains the primary game, at least in the share of the cultural imagination it occupies. Tom Brady may have seven Super Bowl rings, but he ain't got one SEC championship, so who really cares? Thanks for listening. If you're feeling chatty, feel free to hit me up on Twitter at DogsInAutumn, one word, or email me at DogsInAutumn at gmail.com. Also, leave a rating or review. I'd really appreciate it. Till then, I'll see you when I see you.